Welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill. And I'm Lucy Siegel. This week, episode 10, we've got somebody very impressive, haven't we, Tom? The person we've got for you this week is Bill McKibben. You might not have heard of Bill, but Bill has changed your life. If you're looking forward to living in a stable climate in the future, and that actually happens, you can thank Bill, among many other people. But we wanted to speak to Bill. Thanks, Bill. I'd just Uh, like to thank him. (laughs) This week's episode is called Bill Kills, because Bill, who uh, started out writing about climate, changed into, well, he added a string to his bow and became an activist too, and is one of the architects of the divestment movement, which this week claimed a huge uh, new scalp with the Quakers uh, divesting their investments from fossil fuels into less destructive industries. So well done, Quakers, Um, for finally making the move. Yeah, thanks, Quakers. Thanks, Quakers. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. So for years we've been told that the way we do things is set in stone, that we can't change the system, but that's not true. And the system is collapsing. New stories are emerging. Green New Deals, divestment from fossil fuels and global political movements like Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion. Well, our guest today has been dismantling old stories and building new ones to replace them since he started out as a writer on The New Yorker. There's an old adage in journalism, follow the money to get to the story. And he's followed both the money and the oil pretty much continuously. But then he decided not only to follow, but to hasten the very demise of fossil fuels through the divestment movement. Welcome, Bill McKibben, to So Hot Right Now. Well, what a pleasure to be with you, and thank you guys for your good work. Well, thank you. I feel like, um, you know, in Wayne's world, where they meet, is it Alice Cooper? And they go like, we are not worthy, we are not worthy. Uh, uh, I feel a bit like that, because um, uh, yeah, I've, I'm, you have had a very impressive career. Which we're gonna try and play it cool from now on in. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and, I'll, I'll go back to yeah. being cool. Okay, okay. Um, Bill, some people re- uh, refer to you as a journalist turned activist. And we're, we're very interested in that, um, uh, line here on So Hot Right Now. Do you recognise this? And if so, what made you cross that line? Well, I'm, I'm both a writer and an activist. I began my life as a writer and wrote the first book about climate change and, and so on. But in the course of doing it, back when I was 28 or something, it became clear to me that I wasn't entirely objective in in one sense like i knew that i didn't want the planet to heat up and blow away you know um so i didn't i couldn't really be the kind of beat reporter at the new york times on climate change or something like that but i've kept writing all these years in fact for the first 10 or so years after i wrote the end of nature basically it was all i did write and speak because i had made the miscalculation 
that we were engaged in an argument and that if one kept writing and piling up evidence and things, eventually our readers, our leaders would do the right thing. It took me too long to figure out that we really weren't, we, we'd won the argument, you know, by the mid-1990s, the world scientists were very clear about what was going on. We'd won the argument, we were just losing the fight because the fight wasn't about reason and analysis and data. The fight was about what most fights are about, money and power. And the other side of this fight, the fossil fuel industry, was so rich and powerful that we had to build movement to try and counterbalance it. And that's when I became more more explicitly activist, you know, started trying to do things like form350.org and help help organize the fight against the Keystone Pipeline, which was the kind of first thing of its kind, and help launch this big divestment movement, which has become, by some measure, the largest anti-corporate campaign of its kind ever, and, and so on. Do, do you think, because um, often I find that people, uh, you know, it's almost, it's, it's considered to be sort of bad form to have an opinion on what you want if you're writing about something. Like if uh, if you know good good journalism or writing is to sort of be uh, like objective but when there's something like like the destruction of the natural world uh, or climate change and the results of it and the, and how catastrophic they will be um do you feel that some that that has been a tool that sort of false objectivism or the labeling of people having strayed away from being an objective journalist into an activist as a way of defanging their criticisms and their reporting so I don't have a problem at all with um, objective journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem in this case was that the fossil fuel industry, as we now know, set out on this massive disinformation campaign uh, to try and convince people that, you know, black was white and up was down, that we didn't know what truth was about climate change, that there was a lot of doubt. And too much journalism... Uh, substituted uh, a kind of balance for a kind of real objectivity. They were willing to just pretend that it was a two sides question when it was clear it wasn't really that, uh, uh, you know, that the science was very clear. So journalism did waste a fair amount of time. I must say in the last five or six years, uh, they're making up for it. The, the great uh, journalists at places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian or BBC or just a large number of places are doing tremendous reporting about climate change, about its causes and effects. And whether or not that still makes a dent in our kind of post-truth world is hard to know, but that's, you know, what journalists can do, really. And, and what do you make about the fact that some of those um, media organizations that you mentioned there will also employ uh, uh, climate skeptics or deniers at the same time who are maybe columnists or whatever? Well, I mean, I think it's dumb. Um, I, I mean, the, I, I mean, it's like, I mean, the, what's interesting about climate change and makes it different from other political debates and makes it hard for our political system and our journalistic system to cope with them is most of the political problems that we debate really are at some level matters of opinion. Um, you know, I, I think people should all have a, 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 a decent 
uh, living and you think that markets should set wages and so we agree that we're going to pay people $15 an hour minimum wage and then we come back in five years and fight it out again. That's the kind of compromise that's normal and natural for political systems to engage in. I don't know quite how else you do it. The problem is it doesn't work with uh, climate change any more than it works with, say, the coronavirus because, um, because physics and chemistry and biology don't engage in negotiation. They just do what they're going to do. And so in this fairly rare case, our job as political systems is to figure out how to meet that demand, you know, because it's not the negotiation that we're used to having. Um, it would be hard enough to do that if you didn't also have a trillion dollar industry whose, you know, who were whose business model depended on us ignoring climate change and hence was willing to spend a lot of money to poison the debate. So it, it's hard on a bunch of counts. Uh, I mean, the, the good news is that we seem to be finally understanding it at some level, getting it. The polling data shows that even in America, uh, you know, a big majority of people now want action on climate. The bad news, of course, is having waited as long as we've waited, that action is going to be difficult and disruptive. And even if we do it, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of trauma and damage ahead. We didn't flatten the carbon curve. And so now we're going to pay a heavy price. And in terms of um, individual journalists and writers, is, is there a benefit to being on those papers when they're also publishing content, which is throwing still continuing to throw doubt around maybe not maybe not climate because you know even the most egregious kind of deniers will kind of say that they accept a certain a, a certain amount about climate change but maybe there's other things that are, are being done to destabilize about new green economy all that kind of stuff but is it worth still staying on the team and writing for those publications or is it a bit like being one of those medical experts in the back of Trump's press conferences is there a benefit I mean am I glad that there are like reporters at the New York Times who are covering climate yeah. change even <laughs> though even though there's like people who write stupid op-ed columns about climate yeah. once in a while yeah I'm glad exactly. that there are people at the Times covering climate change I think it's super important to continue to get good information out into the world. And I, I can't think of, of any other way to counter the kind of poisonous information, misinformation that spreads. I don't know whether it's enough anymore to counter it. I mean, you know, we live in a world where places like the New York Times have much less power than they once did because, you know, your crazy uncle on Facebook is filling, you know, the world with his own you know, bizarre memes about who knows what, you know, and they all sort of take on some kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, general equivalence that, and that's one of the reasons why we live in such a crazily confused world now. Is mm. it worth trying to diffuse that uncle's messaging? And is, have you got any tactics as to how we might do that? Well, it is sort of, I mean, to some degree. But it's not, I think, the main goal. I mean, I think at this point, if you look at a country like America, 70% of people are understanding that climate change is real and have a basic sense of what we need to do about it. They may not quite get the urgency, but they get it. 
So trying to persuade the last 30% seems super hard work because they're not just waiting for another study to appear in, you know, nature or science next week. They have this kind of deep ideological commitment to a worldview that's unlikely to change. If you'd spent the last 30 years kind of marinating in Rush Limbaugh, you know, the odds that you are going to wake up and are, are slim. So, you know, I tell people often, like, don't destroy Thanksgiving dinner arguing with your crazy uncle about climate change. It's not worth it. But do take some time to talk with your sweet aunt a while who understands that there's a problem and doesn't want her grandchildren to have to inherit a broken world and try and get her a little more engaged in actually doing something about it. That's the, really the problem. That 70%, it, we need some fraction of them actually engaged in this fight joined in this movement, doing this work. And if we can get that, then we'll be able to move political and economic systems. It doesn't take 50% of people. The kind of history indicates that if you can get 4 or 5% of people engaged in a fight, you generally win. But we don't have that yet. We need some more people pushing hard. Mm. So I, I tend to work on trying to get engaged those who are already uh, uh, understand the issue and i guess you've, you've had some real success with the divestment uh, movement in 350.org in being part of uh, what is now a stronger and stronger transition towards uh, alternative uh, renewable energy sources has have you found that going from a world where they weren't by many people considered viable where perhaps you weren't considered a threat by the by the like oil and gas companies that stand to lose if they are successful uh, uh, have you found that you've had to change how you work as communicator and have you found you face different kinds of challenges as renewables have gone, become strengthened? Well, what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, it was hard to talk about renewables because they were, on the one hand, necessary. We had to do something that wasn't oil and gas was going to break the planet. But on the other hand, it was hard to figure out exactly how to get that across because they were still expensive and difficult to use. That's all changed. I mean, the last decade saw the price of a solar panel drop 90%. This is now the mm. cheapest way to generate power around most of the world. So that's no longer the issue. I don't even think there's a, I think almost everyone's willing to concede that that's how we're going to run the planet, you know, 50 years from now. The problem is that the legacy oil and gas industry want to slow down that transition as much as possible, you know, eke out every last uh, penny that they can from the current system. And, and our job as activists has to be to speed up that transition because physics is demanding that we make this change, not just make this change, but make it fast. As you know, the IPCC has basically given us a deadline. If we're at by 2030, we haven't made fundamental transformations of our energy system, which they define as cutting emissions by about half, then we'll never meet those targets we set in Paris. So that's the dilemma here. Uh, the hard thing to communicate is how fast we need to move, that small incremental shifts uh, sadly aren't going to do it now. One of the things I have to stop myself from doing 
since I wrote the first book about this 30 years ago, sometimes I have to stop myself from saying, oh, if only you'd listen to me then, you know, mm -hmm. because 30 years ago, there actually were a lot of small incremental things that would have made a huge difference. A modest price on carbon in 1990 <clears throat> would have shifted our whole global economy in different direction. And we'd be, you know, sailing through a different ocean now. But we didn't mm -hmm. do that. So now we have to move with more speed than we'll be comfortable. Journalists are usually quite good with deadlines. Why are they not good with this one? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, as I say, I think that journalism fell into a trap for 20 years <clears throat> of treating it as a kind of he said, she said, both sides kind of story. Uh, they were they got rolled by the fossil fuel industry. But I do think journalism has, you know, come out of that for the most part. And there's an extraordinary amount of great journalism going on right now about climate change all over the world. And and much of it reflecting the urgency that we need. So, so a lot of people listening to this uh, will be working in journalism or communications and wondering, you know, some of them might be new to this like how to do it, how to do this well. What other traps are there that we're continuing to fall into in our communication around climate change? Well, I think that, the, I mean, the, the first thing is, if you're new to it, pay some attention to the extraordinary journalists that are working this beat now all over the place. Um, and some of them at obvious places. I mean, the Post just won a very deserved Pulitzer for its series, uh, yeah. Two Degrees Celsius. Uh, the Times is doing... The graphics department is doing week after week astonishing job of, of making clear what the stakes are. There's, you know, wonderful science reporting uh, going on all over the place. There are these newsletters from people like Emily Atkin that are, uh, you know, providing yes. daily doses of information. Heated. I love I love heated. It's brilliant. You know, it's on brilliant. and on and on. Um, I have the great pleasure every week of uh, writing this, the New York, the New Yorker has me do a weekly uh, newsletter kind of compendium. Um, and, uh, and it's really fun just to get to survey all the work that gets done in the course of a week now around the world. So I think people starting out should, you know, have plenty of models to work with, which we didn't when I was starting out doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those you know, I, I think that the the traps are, are obvious. Um, you know, uh, uh, any time that one uh, forgets that science is at the heart of this, one gets in trouble. And any time one forgets that that science manifests itself in a world that's deeply divided, uh, one gets in trouble. Look, the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and harder you suffer. It's an expression of the larger injustice and inequality uh, on our planet. And that's probably the key to covering a lot of it at the moment. Uh, understanding what communities are really in the way, understanding mm. where the work is really getting done, um, knowing that the most, you know, that, that you know, the people you got to have on your Rolodex include indigenous leaders around the world who are doing an amazing job of working on this, include frontline community leaders in every country who are uh, uh, really uh, uh, at the forefront of the opposition. It's a 
powerful moment in a lot of ways. And, and it's the greatest story that any journalist will ever get to cover. I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking about the most transformative thing that's ever happened on our planet. That's really great advice, actually. And um, often uh, the people that we speak to on So Hot Right Now have a number of greatest hits under their belts, as do you. Um, you mentioned the first book that you wrote, The End of Nature, which was a was a big seller, actually. Um and I also wanted to ask you about that Rolling Stone piece, which was a, a break, a kind of breakthrough. Mm. Uh, global warming's terrifying new math, or maths, as we would say, from 2012. Uh, and there's been so much analysis of it, especially by kind of media professors, and I'm sure there will be for years to come. Why were you surprised by how how big that piece went? I think you you described it as or the response to it is wickedly viral. Were you surprised by it? Well, I wasn't completely surprised because as I was writing it, you know, I'd been by that point working for 20 years on this and I was kind of shocked by the math that I was writing about. Like I thought I basically understood at some level uh, what there was to understand about climate change. But to see it laid out in this new math that we were assembling to really understand that the fossil fuel industry had something like five times as much carbon in its reserves as it would take to to wreck the planet was to understand that unless we were able to change that storyline, the end of this drama had already been written, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a new sense of just where we stood. And so... That shocked me, and I, and I, so I wasn't completely surprised that it ended up shocking other people too, uh, and and I'm glad I, you know that math became sort of the underpinning of the beginning of the divestment campaign, which in turn has become a really important lever in this fight. Um, could you explain quickly for people who haven't heard it of it what the divestment campaign is? So beginning with that proposition that the fossil fuel industry had far more carbon than we could safely burn. From that, uh, uh, a few of us, and at the beginning, sort of Naomi Klein and I were sort of working it out together, uh, thought, look, the way to understand these companies is that they're now rogue companies, that pursuing their business model basically destroys the planet. So it's not okay to be investing in them. It's not just some other company that you're investing in. And we thought back to our... Uh, college days when the fight had been against apartheid in South Africa and a tool that had been effectively used was this divestment from companies engaged in business with South Africa. So we started asking institutions to do the same thing with regard to fossil fuel. Uh, I went out on a road show first around the US then around Europe and Australia uh, night after night after night with big, big crowds of people saying, look, here's what we need to do. And and somewhat to our surprise, it's worked. It's now at about $14 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have Holy crap. Uh, divested, including most recently, I got to say, uh, uh, one that really made us quite happy was to see Oxford uh, University decide to divest from fossil fuel. Uh, across yes. On Earth Day, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. I mean, across the UK, 
uh, groups like People and Planet have done a fantastic job of, of pushing this. And so now half the, more than half the universities in the UK have divested from fossil fuel. But it's, you know, also the Pension Fund of New York City. It's the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's, you know, huge, mm-hmm. huge pots of money. And it's having a huge effect. Uh, Shell Oil said in their last annual report that it had become a material risk to its business, which is good because Shell Oil's business is a material risk to our planet, you know. Um, um, the coal industry basically can't raise money on its own anymore because there's just no banks or anyone left to invest in it. And now this divestment work has rolled into a larger attack on the financial institutions that underpin the fossil fuel industry. We've been calling it Stop the Money Pipeline, and we've been aiming at groups like the huge asset manager BlackRock, which thankfully mm. earlier this year uh, took a strong position on climate change. We've been aiming I saw for that. the yeah. Chase Bank. Didn't he say something like that he would know that, that, that he doesn't see carbon as a good investment or something like that right they said i mean we'll see how we'll see what it translates to but they said that 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 climate was would fundamentally reshape the financial uh our financial calculations for the rest of the century and they were going to take it into account with everything they did now we don't know yet quite how seriously they mean that but given that blackrock is the biggest box of money on the planet something like one dollar in eight in the world rests in their digital vaults, uh, it's a big deal that they've been forced to take this seriously. And that's what happens when, you know, activists build big, broad movements. We're able, I mean, when we fight, we win a surprising number, of, a surprising percentage of the time. So we should probably fight more often. Did, did you think at the beginning that you'd have, have this success? Have you been surprised by this? Um, we didn't obviously think... Uh, sort of on this scale, but we did think that we probably could. We thought it was worth trying that one mm-hmm. could, um, that one could at the very least take away the kind of social license of these companies, help people understand what kind of rogue actors they were, and the fact that it's reached the place where it's also causing them severe financial trouble, where it's raising their cost of capital and making it hard for them to find investors. That's a, that's excellent too. Have you found that have you as the the organisations that you're associated with and your work has made has been has caused like material risk to these corporations? Has that come with any risk to you sticking your head above the parapet and being such a vocal uh, part of this? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, for thirty years I've gotten fairly used to the, you know, sort of steady, uh, you know, just weekly sometimes daily flow of death threats and things. Um, they've, you know, they've gotten more intense sometimes as as these campaigns have, have been successful. Um, the low point in many ways for me was when the fossil fuel industry announced that it was <laughs> going to do, uh, it hired a firm that does opposition research and they said, they put out a press release and said they were going to, uh, do opposition research on me in a way that they'd only previously done on presidential candidates. And so every time I went out my door for quite a while, there was a guy there with a video camera who just stayed two feet in front of me and followed me every place I went, you know, and they would post God. videos of me sitting in church and, you know, whatever it was. And and so that was, you know, 
I didn't complain about it till we thought that they were also following my daughter, um, at which point, you know, I wrote a piece for the New York Times, and they seemed eventually to back off some. Um, but yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff's grim, but what do you, ex you know, I, I suppose, mm -hmm. what do you expect? Um, there's, there's, there's never been more money on the line than, uh, you know, with, with this transition off fossil fuel. So I guess it stands to reason that they're going to play, uh, fairly rough and they've got the resources to do it. Uh, Tom mentioned that we, um, uh, uh, we often speak to people who want to move into this space, who are students and want to tell stories about nature and climate. And I don't think anyone would enter this space for a quiet life. But the sort of targeted harassment that you have experienced and that you um, just explained then, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes, it, it makes me feel terrible that we're not able to protect people from that kind of harassment and I'm thinking uh, about the recent film that came out on YouTube Planet of the Humans which you know I, we don't need to critique it here because plenty of people have already have already done that but it is it is a, a smear campaign re really against you yeah so so and that's it's it's all true but it is worth putting it all in context you know um, we do a lot, you know, 350.org works all over the planet, uh, pretty much every country in the world. So we know everybody, I know everybody around the world. I mean, we lost, we got lost, killed, you know, uh, 100, 150 great environmental activists around the world last year. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's reality in a lot of places. Um, and so, yeah, one it's no fun to to deal with smear campaigns and you know so on and so forth but it, it, on that scale it's it's survivable and and necessary i mean one way of looking at the problem that we're in right now is to say the planet is way 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 outside its comfort zone that's what it means when you've lost half the sea ice in the summer arctic or the Great Barrier Reef, which is the biggest living structure on the planet, is half as living as it was five years ago. Or, you know, Australia is, you know, essentially burning to the ground and over the Christmas holidays. I mean, the planet's way outside its comfort zone. So we unfortunately need to be somewhere outside our comfort zones, too, in trying to deal with it. And that'll mean different things for different people. You know, for me, it's, I mean, it's meant I've spent more time in jail than I would have predicted, given my, you know, uh, essentially uh, <laughs> uh, uh, dull and law-abiding, you know, uh, nature and things. Um, and it's meant, you know, a life of death threats and smears and whatever. But, but that's, you know, that's that is what it is. Uh, the the problem here is that we need lots of people and the good news is that it gets much easier with each passing day for people like me because the burden is much more widely shared i mean mm -hmm. i can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to watch over the last few years the i mean you know we started the first iteration of a global climate movement with 350.org about a decade ago 
and the thing we were most committed to was just growing that in every direction. That's why it's been so much fun to watch the Sunrise Movement come up and the Green New Deal, why it's been so much fun to watch Extinction Rebellion, why it's been such uh, almost a small miracle to watch the high school kids and junior high school kids assemble in the last, you know, 24 months around uh, climate strikes and to get to know people like Greta, but more to know that there are, you know, 10,000 Gretas scattered around the planet, young people who are doing spectacular work. So, uh, you know, with each passing day, that movement gets bigger and the and and hence the you know burden on any one of us i think gets a little smaller have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island jane gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics but she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets i'm alice levine and this is the price of paradise the island dream that ends in kidnap corruption and murder Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. What advice would you have given yourself at the beginning of this for you, I guess, almost over 30 years ago? I think I, I, think I would have... I think if I could go back, I would tell myself, look, the, the, the mere facts of this alone are not going to be sufficient to win the fight. It's a fight in a way that you that I didn't comprehend with power, not you know, not over reason over who will who will win who has the most influence. And so I would have started uh, uh, building movements sooner and I kick myself for not having figured that out sooner. Uh, that 10 year delay didn't help us any. Did was that because, as you described, you, you you sort of had this faith in the facts would do the job, or was there part of you that didn't feel that it was your job or position because you were a journalist, because you were a commentator? Well, it was a certain amount of both, I suppose, but but mostly the former. Um, I didn't understand that our political systems were as broken as they turned out to be. Uh, as easy to be dominated by influence of vested interest. I mean, I knew that that was the case, but it didn't seem to, I I didn't understand what a titanic fight it was going to be. And, and so, you know, I'm glad I, I'm glad that some of us eventually figured it out, (laughs) got to work building movements. I uh, I read that your your father got was arrested himself for protesting was it the, the Vietnam War? Yes, my um, father was not an activist in any way. He was a journalist and a business journalist, uh, and a very good one. Um, but but that's true. There was one day uh, when the protests about the Vietnam War came to our suburban town outside Boston, and he did take part and was arrested. And I've always remembered that. Uh, as a kind of good reminder of what citizenship entails. Um, um, you know, I think that uh, citizenship fell a little out of fashion in our time, um, and I'm glad to see it resurging in, uh, in a lot of ways. We lived our, you know, much of my political life in the shadow of Ronald Reagan or of Margaret Thatcher, who 
carried the day with the idea that markets solved all problems and that you know our job was just each to pursue our own self-interest and so on and so forth and and that shadow uh, uh, that shadow sort of fell hard against the idea of citizenship the idea mm. instead that what we really need to do is come together to to make necessary change and i think that that shadows lifting some now you know ronald reagan his famous laugh line always was um the nine scariest words in the english language are i'm here from the government and i'm i'm i'm, I'm from the government and i'm here to help well, you know, ha ha, but really those aren't the scariest words in the English language. The scariest mm -hmm. words are, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house has caught on fire, and you can't solve those problems, you know, one, one person at a time. You can only solve right. them when we come together, when we act as citizens to build the kind mm -hmm. of societies that we need. Do you think that our relentless obsession in storytelling, in, in all kinds of storytelling, from fiction to who we how we, where we choose to frame stories by finding individuals within communities and talking about how they've done something very important and, and focusing on individualism and, and individuals fixing things, do you think that's been part of the problem in how we report on these, these issues when really it's collectivism and collective responses and doing things as a society which will solve these issues? Well, it's a good, that's a good question. I mean, storytelling really is how people understand the world, you know? I mean, you definitely need a strong base of, like, scientific research and reporting and understanding all the time because that's the world that we're, you know, trying to describe. But once you get that, then stories really are how we explain things to each other. Um, but one of the stories that we need to tell is precisely these stories around movements uh, and and what it means when people come together. And that's a that's a story that journalists are often a little wary of. You know, they're worried of being perceived as having some kind of liberal bias or, you know, whatever it is, at least in this country. Um, and. And so those stories don't always get told as well as they should. As I say, I think that's changing now. Um, and we see more and more understanding of just how important they are. And it's really good to see like people figured out why Greta Thunberg was an important voice and then found all the other voices like hers around. It's a very good thing to be doing. And conversely, people like Greta and all those others have been really good about saying over and over again, look, this isn't about us. This is mm. about us together uh, building what we can. As mm. as the senator from Vermont, Mr. Sanders, likes to say, not me, us. And that's a pretty good motto for our time. Do you, mm. yeah. do you two hang out? Uh, Vermont's a small place, so we see each other uh, on occasion. And, you know, I... The day he announced for president in 2016, I had the honor of introducing him. Uh, his the introducers, his the people who introduced him when he announced for president were me, and Ben and Jerry. So you know it was a, a sort of Vermont day. Um, Vermont all stars. And I worked hard. On, I worked hard on that campaign of his, and you know he sent me off to help write the Democratic Party platform and things. So yes, I I 
there are few figures I admire more in our political life than Bernie. My another of my heroes, Roger Payne, uh, the great whale biologist, also now lives in Vermont. Vermont, um, Vermont is uh, a small place, but it punches above its weight, as we say. <laughs> do, you, do you know Roger Payne? The yes, indeed I do. Biologist? Indeed I do, and admire him enormously. <laughs> That'll He's make wonderful. Tom very happy. Oh, yeah. I visited him there and he showed me the scratch marks on his uh, mosquito screen where a bear had leant up to try and drink from his uh, hummingbird feeder. And then he showed me the scratch marks above it where the bear had come back the following year a little bit taller yeah, there and reached up. <laughs> <laughs> He'd found a bar room. That's good. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's a lesson in there for sure. This is a very big question, but where do you think we... Where do you think we are with with a new Green Deal, with the concept of a new Green Deal? Do you think over the last two months that the, the penny is dropping with people? So I think that you can in this. I, mean, I think you can work it either way, <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, clearly people are starting to wake up to uh, the fact that we need big change and. Um, in a world with massive unemployment, which we now have, thanks to coronavirus, uh, it's very hard to list, to come up with a list of tasks that would put tens of millions of people to work that doesn't focus on this energy transition. I mean, scrapping out oil and gas and replacing it with sun and wind is clearly the biggest human task we face, the one that requires the most human hands and hence is the best chance for a kind of recovery from the economic morass into which we've fallen. So that's, those all argue in favor. Of course, on the other hand, there's just like a, you know, A, we're, we're going to be, perceive ourselves as poor for a while. And B, there's a understandable intense desire among some people to get back to normal even if normal wasn't working all that well to begin with, um, um, you know, that's an understandable impulse. So, uh, you know, who knows quite how it'll work out. I think one place you'll sort of be able to watch is in our cities. I mean, if you're in London right now, your desire to take the tube may be somewhat reduced from what it has been in the past, okay? Definitely, Um, So the question is, are you going to just jump in a car now to do what needs doing? And if you do, then London will become a clogged, pollution-choked traffic nightmare. Or are you going to follow the lead that, that you know Sadiq Khan and others seem to be making of like, let's use this as an opportunity to reimagine our city. Let's close half the streets in central London to everything but buses and muscles, you know. And 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 that um, you know that could produce a different London, which in turn could produce help produce a kind of different mindset about the world. So we'll see. We'll see which which human impulse uh, is stronger right now. I mean, in the U.S., it's going to be very hard in the short term because we're governed by an idiot, and that makes everything hard. You know. Um, we're not going to see leadership. Uh, thank heaven we have an election coming up. Maybe we'll have someone else in charge before much longer. But uh, and, and we better because 
as you know, with climate change, time really is of the essence. The thing that makes it a distinctive problem is that time limit. So we're running out of presidential cycles or, you know, uh, uh, I mean, if we're going to do anything, we're going to do it soon. Mm. I'm very interested in how with the two of the examples that have come up uh, today, the Green New Deal and the divestment, they're, they're both taking on a new problem, uh, climate change, but with stories that resonate from the, pre the last century, you know, uh, apartheid and the first New Deal. Um, and I wonder what other tools from historic movements that have brought about social change and made things better, um, we could also be pulling in and using as story tools, as, as things to rally around, things that people could be familiar with. Well, I think the two great inventions of the 20th century were the solar panel and the nonviolent social movement. And I think we have this extraordinary legacy. Uh, and I think those two things are going to have to work together this century in order to mm -hmm. get done what needs doing. Um, I think we have this extraordinary legacy dating back to the suffragettes and Gandhi and Dr. King and others, uh, millions of others, uh, mostly coming from the margins about how you make change in societies. And so I'm very hopeful that we take those lessons and continue to explore them, continue to move down those paths. Um, I, I don't actually see any other way that we're going to get change at the pace we need. Just um, going back to your uh, Rolling Stone piece, <laughs> that Rolling Stone piece, where would you be, have you got any tips as where we should be looking at the numbers where's the next great story gonna come from that's a good question i mean this 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 waterfront is so well covered now in a sense that i don't know if there are kind of breakthrough pieces like that that quite in quite the same way that will sort of reshape our uh understanding of the landscape or not um we may, you know, we we may be in a kind of different phase of this now, where uh, the job is to take those understandings and just make them real. But one of the things I've learned over the years is repetition is extraordinarily important. Uh, figuring mm. out different ways to say things, the same thing in different instances and illustrations and examples is key. Journalism has a default to novelty. Um, it's highly, highly prized among journalists. And that's a difficulty here. Um, I mean, I feel it strongly myself, but, you know, I've disciplined myself to write thousands of op-eds that say in different ways much the same thing over the years because I know that's what's required. And I know because I understand, you know, I've watched, you know, I, I watch advertisers no advertiser ever buys one spot on television and expects it to do the job. They know mm. that you have to buy thousands of spots so that you hear it over and over and over again uh, until it's, you know, part of your um, internal vocabulary, uh, whatever message they're trying to get across. That's interesting because I guess, yeah, that also journalism has a tendency towards exclusivity. You know, uh, we, this is our story. That, you know this this uh, which also is at odds with trying to get important information to people who might need to know about it right so it's um, important you know it's 
good to have journalists working hard to uncover things and get scoops and whatever, but it's also really important for uh, journalists to be uh, sharing uh, the mm -hmm. work that others are doing. And I actually think journalists are getting much better at that in an age when it's easy to link to things. Um, um, the good ones do all the time. I mean, basically, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my journalistic work in recent years, especially with this New Yorker newsletter now and things, is just an endless sharing of links, an endless sharing of trying to sort of shift the spotlight around over and over again to lots of other people. Because mm. I think, I mean, that's, I guess that's also part of this feeling of being part of a movement or part of a community of people who have shared goals is when you feel part of something bigger than yourself for a cause that you think is bigger than yourself, you stop being so obsessed with the things that are important if you're just led by self-interest, which is like prestige, reward, um, uh, you know, being told by people that you are the person who's got that scoop well done. You know, that those things become, I guess, less important uh, if you're if you're feeling part of a community. Yeah, I think that that's true. Doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean that those other impulses need to disappear. Like, mm -hmm. as I say, I thought it was terrific that The Washington Post won the Pulitzer for this spectacular series on climate change because it sets a high bar. So now, you know, mm. uh, everybody else will be trying to top it, uh, which is good. I mean, journalism yeah. is a fantastic art and and it's, you know, obviously we're at a hard moment for journalism because the resources to support it aren't there in the way they used to be. Uh, the net has undermined uh, the ability to, you know, get ad revenues and things that, that help support journalists. So we have fewer people out keeping an eye on the world, and that's a big problem. Um, but it means that those who are need to be all the much better. When you've had like the most difficult times when it's felt like other people aren't interested in this, when it's felt like the things you were doing weren't going to work. What has sustained you? Well, I mean, uh, if I think the things that have beyond, you know, being able to get out easily into the woods, which is important for me, I, I've been sustained by the idea that, that at the very least the trajectory of movement building has been going in the right direction now. I mean, we started from nothing 12, 15 years ago when we first started doing this organizing. I mean, I organized a march across Vermont in 2006. First thing I ever really tried to organize uh, with some other people. And we had a thousand people marching, which sounds like nothing, but the story in the Local newspaper said that it was probably the biggest demonstration that had yet taken place in the U.S. about climate change. So wow. that was the, you know, sort of baseline in 2006. So we've been moving steadily up <laughs> ever since. <laughs> and that trajectory has been in the right direction. So that's motivating. Um, the question always is whether that trajectory line crosses fast enough with the, the line of the planet's physical decay, you know, and so far, no, but uh, we're getting closer. When we look at the last year and the energy that's been provided and the stories that have been provided through organizing and collective action through Exile, Fridays for the Future, all of that kind of stuff, uh, obviously the fact that no one can meet or get together at the moment is, is a real issue. I was talking to some activists the other day 
who felt that they were coming to the end of the road on what they could do um, over Zoom and all the rest of it. How, how damaging how damaging is it and how can they keep how can we kind of all keep the fire alight during this time so it's been very damaging in certain ways you know uh, the 50th anniversary of earth day would have been a very big deal and we would have had people occupying the lobbies of 2000 chase bank branches across america because they're the biggest fossil fuel lender in the world and so on um so you know having to cancel all that's hard um and it's also hard to watch the fossil fuel industry take advantage of our, you know, they've started trying to start construction on the Keystone Pipeline right now, precisely because they know that the 35,000 people who are trained up and ready to go do civil disobedience can't do it, you know, that they're ordered to stay at home. Um, um, so all that's hard. Uh, people are getting, doing interesting work online, uh, figuring out how to do uh, kinds of new kinds of digital activism. But it's also a reminder that none of that's a substitute in a way for being out in the real world um, engaged in this. I think that the real questions that come out of the pandemic are just whether or not this odd moment in human history, the oddest moment in any of our collective lives that we can remember, um, uh, whether or not it sets us up for big change coming out of it or not, whether we emerge psychologically and uh, practically in a place where we're ready to make big change or whether it just turns us all into, you know, uh, uh, worrywarts who don't, um, you know, put our head above the parapet ever again uh, and, and we'll see i mean hmm. i'm i'm hopeful that it'll move us in the right direction but then i always try to be hopeful you do you had a species uh, of animal named after you megophthalmidia mckibbeni um and i wanted to ask you um did you get to choose uh the species no i i didn't they just they very biologists very kindly wrote me to say they'd done this and i was very pleased that they'd chosen they the the species was a uh, species of woodland gnat uh, <laughs> and, and i'm happy to uh be embodied in a kind of annoying uh, pest that just keeps coming back you know that <laughs> It's something of a backhanded com compliment. Yeah, I took it as a completely full-on compliment. So I'm, I was very pleased. And you never see one gnat, right? Always. They're social. They're exactly social right. Exactly yeah. right. They only work in swarms. <laughs> I think that's a sign that you know that you've, that you've, that you've made it. Uh, you've been effective. Right. Lucy, do you know, what, would you, what do you think you'd be, Lucy, if you were immortalized as an animal? A new species. Something like a warthog or something that like just runs around in a circle. <laughs> not achieving, not achieving all that it should. Yeah, you guys are doing very good work and we're grateful for it. Um, what stories would you just like to die now that have been hanging around and you hear them coming up again and people regurgitate them and they're just sort of getting in the way of other more interesting discourse? Uh, the, so the, the, the great disappointment of my journalistic life these last 10 years is I've written this story a hundred times but it never seems to get through uh, that natural gas 
is a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. The idea that it's somehow a bridge fuel that will help is an old and hoary myth that refuses to die, mostly because the natural gas industry has a lot of money and <laughs> keeps at it, you know. Um, but, but what people need to understand is that the renewable energy guys have reached the point where there's no bridge needed. I mean, they're mm -hmm. the bridge to the future. Uh, they're ready to go. Uh, uh, you know, we can do this now. And I, I think if people got that, it would make for faster progress. So we I don't... can't believe you've been hiding that format point under your hat, Tom. What format point? The, 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 the chance to kill a story. Oh, sorry. I just thought great. about it. Great. I love it. No, it's great. <laughs> McKibben kills. That's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great opportunity. Slays. There you go. Yeah. Amazing that you drove in your electric car out to Wi-Fi so that we could talk to you during the lockdown. Brilliant. Very good of you. I've Carol enjoyed this immensely. Thank you guys very much. Um, can I just say at the end of that episode, if any of my crazy uncles on Facebook are listening, that was not directed at you. I feel I now have to also add that my crazy uncle, sorry, my uncle is not crazy. Um, He's not. Um, no, but I feel that because you've made that clear now, I, I kind of have to. Only, um, only if it's relevant. It's just a disclaimer that I like to make. Um, that was a very impressive interview because not only did he supply, did Bill supply the sort of motivation, but he also supplied a lot of the data and the facts, mm. like the percentage of people that you need to get to to activate change. Yeah, and it's good to to not have to worry about trying to win round the people who you're not going to win round. Um, I heard a story uh, the other day about David Attenborough giving a talk um, at some public event. And I think somebody stood up uh, and said, um, so, do you know, how, like, how, how are you going to explain evolution and that we came from monkeys or something else like that? And apparently David Attenborough just said, what would it take me to say to you that would make you change your mind about evolution? And the upshot, this is all hearsay, I was told this story uh, yesterday, was that, um, was that the, the man couldn't actually tell David Attenborough anything that would persuade him to change his mind. Uh, and I watched a documentary about flat earthers the other day, people who believe that the earth is flat. Is that the and one on Netflix? Yeah, it's, it's great. It's really great. It's, re it's really great. And there's a really interesting part of that where you realise that this community of people, it's not very... You, you, there's very few things. In fact, there's nothing that the documentary comes up that would actually make the flat earth community change its mind about the earth being flat. Um, and I think that's a very they even important lesson. But they even do a, a very complicated experiment um, which disproves their own theory. And they just mm -hmm. go, oh, I don't think the equipment was working. Yeah. Well, it made me think about um, tree in conservation biology. There's this theory called like, well, in general, there's triage right you're an you're an ambulance driver you arrive at a car crash and there's like five people who are gravely injured um and uh what do you do if you've got five minutes do you put the people who are going to recover easily in the recovery position or do you try and save the person who's who's probably not going to make it who's had all of their body destroyed you don't you save the people who are probably going to make it it's brutal 
But if you've got limited time and limited resources, you've got to think, how am I going to be most effective? And I think in climate communications and nature communications, we could learn from this. Mm. We could endlessly get sucked into arguments on Twitter. How much of our day would that take up with people who aren't going to believe that climate change mm -hmm. is a problem? We could endlessly get sucked into conversations with commissioning editors about how to make programs for the people who just won't believe that the, the poles mm -hmm. are melting. Or we could make programs about uh, for people who already care about it and want to know what they can do most mm. effectively. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I found that really helpful. It is uh, very helpful and it's a very good documentary. Now, this is not a weird segue from talking about triage and ambulances, but we send our best wishes to Bill McKibben, who was in a bike crash and is thankfully uh, recovered and or recovering and I believe has left hospital. So... Bill, we just send you all our love. Yeah. Um, Bill, uh, he actually described it, I think, as his two-wheeled low-carbon vehicle. One sec, let me just, let me find what he wrote about it on his... Nobody but, says it better than Bill. So, yeah, it's worth, it's worth <laughs> reading his words. So, Bill, as you mentioned in the show, has this New Yorker um, newsletter that he posts every week uh, and if you go to n n the new yorker's website you can sign up for it for free and it's brilliant and he has managed to write this entire newsletter this week while only adding as an afterthought very far down the bottom but it's very difficult for him to write part of the newsletter this week because he can barely sit up in bed he said he fell off his two-wheeled low-carbon transit device. That's how he describes his bicycle on Thursday. <laughs> and managed to break six ribs and a shoulder blade and incurred a severely separated shoulder. Uh, he's been in hospital ever since. Uh, and that's why this newsletter is shorter than usual. I mean, this just plays into the general feeling I got from Bill on the podcast that it's not about Bill. He, what, he's, what he does is so impressive, but it's... For yeah. him, it's just never about him. It's not about him. It's 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 about everyone else. Um, and I just want to say, I wasn't laughing then at his accident. I was laughing at the way he describes a bike. Yes, it is just for clarity. Uh, a brilliant way of describing a bicycle. Yes, we would send Bill a fruit. We would send Bill a fruit basket, but he wouldn't want one, and he'd think that was unnecessary consumption and ridiculous. So we're not going to, but let this be our fruit basket. He writes, yeah, he writes in his news, newspaper uh, newsletter that, uh, that thank you for the, all the get well emails. They're surprisingly good anaesthetic. So if you're listening and you appreciate what Bill had to say, feel free to find him on Twitter and wish him well, uh, because no one minds that. And we hope you you recover quickly and are back to speeding around your on your what was it two wheeled low carbon transit device really soon. <laughs> Get well, Bill. And also, in, well. instead of sending him a gift or a card, uh, he would want you to join the divestment movement. Yeah. Get your pensions out of dirty fuels. Instead of grapes. That typing you can hear is, they were so hot right now, team, signing up to Bill's newsletter. If you um, go to newyorker.com forward slash newsletter forward slash the hyphen climate hyphen crisis. That's newyorker.com forward slash newsletter forward slash the hyphen climate hyphen crisis or just Google New Yorker wow. climate crisis newsletter. You'll get to Bill McKibben's newsletter and then you'll get it all the time. If you, if you follow those instructions, you're doing really, really well. W, double, double, <laughs> full stop. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much this week to our producer, Natalie Jameson. Uh, thank you, as That's ever. That's it. Thank-, <laughs> uh, thank you to our producers, Fourth Floor Creative and Picture Zero. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Take care.